Hello, everybody. I'm going to take the fact that the meeting is now being recorded as cue to start. So welcome very much to this Constitution event to launch a really important new report by Professor Meg Russell and uh, Daniel Gover, Gover about uh, taking back control, how Parliament should set its agenda and use its time. Uh, this is a really interesting issue, as all of you will know, as experts on parliamentary processes, that Parliament's lack of control over whether it indeed meets and what it gets to discuss has been an increasing source of very visible frustration in uh, recent years, perhaps in a crescendo over some of the Brexit and coronavirus debates. So it's really, really timely that we have this new report from Meg and Dan. I'm just going to give you some housekeeping. I'm Jill Russell. I'm a senior research fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. Delighted that Meg is one of our senior fellows. Uh, I have to say that. Uh, so it's great that uh, great that we've they've done this work. Uh, how are we going to run this event? Is Meg and Dan are going to present the report so that we all know what it says uh, for about. 12 minutes or so and then we're going to have responses from some of the people who are potentially key players on whether this goes anywhere or not. I'm delighted that we're joined by Valerie Vaz, Shadow Leader of the House and the Right Honourable Cameron Bradley MP, uh, the Chair of the Commons Procedure Committee and then as the last respondent we have Sir David Natzler who until recently was Clerk of the House of Commons so a very distinguished parliamentary procedure experts. So they're going to comment. We'll have a bit of chat among ourselves, not least to give Meg and Dan the chance to respond to those comments. And then we're very keen to hear from you. And this is the bit where you need to take notes because we have one of three ways in which you can engage in the debate. There is a chat. If you want to appear on screen and put your question to the panel themselves with no pre-censorship or risk of paraphrase by me, just say, I'd like to speak. Uh, so don't put your hand up, just put it in the chat and I will come to you. Uh, if you want to indicate what you might want to chat about, that might be helpful in terms of grouping some questions, but that's not compulsory. If you would like me to ask your question for you, just write it in the chat, but I am trying to look at people at the same time. So brevity would be very welcome uh, just to enable me to cope with that. Uh, thirdly, if you're somebody who'd like to post a question, but is slightly worried, notwithstanding the fact that this is a private session, that uh, you don't want to appear on screen or put your name to your question in the chat, send a private message through that facility in the chat to Lisa James, that's Lisa James, Meg's uh, sidekick, uh, and Lisa will then post it anonymously into the chat. So those are your three modes of participation. I need to warn you, particularly those of you who are clerks or indeed civil servants, that we are intending to make a video of this whole event available for people who haven't been able to be here or indeed been invited. Uh, it's possible that we'll just stop that at the end of the presentations, but we'd really, if possible, like to make available the video of the Q&A as well. So if you could exercise the necessary degree of self-restraint so that you're not emailing us afterwards saying, please do not in a million years show that career ending question I asked, that would be hugely helpful to all of us. 
So that's what we're going to do. We're going to run this through to uh, to two forty five. Uh, but obviously, if the questions dry up, I don't anticipate that happening with the people that we've got on this call. We can finish it a bit earlier. Um, so don't feel obliged to ask questions for the sake of it. We're all okay with that. Um, I'm very interested, uh, very interested to hear the variety of views about the merits of the changes proposed, but also how we might incentivize making them happen. So think about your suggestions and questions as the speakers start off. So without further ado, you didn't come here to hear from me. You came here to hear from Professor Meg Russell and Daniel Gover. So over to you, Meg. Thank you very much, Jill. I'm great, very grateful to you and the other panelists for being here to discuss our report and to the audience for listening. I'd also like to thank the many parliamentary experts and others, some named inside and others not, who helped us in preparing the report. This report was spurred by some of the very fractious arguments we've witnessed in recent years about the House of Commons role in decision-making vis-a-vis the executive. Arguments became very heated over Brexit, which was the original focus due to my fellowship with the UK in a changing Europe. But even after last December's election with Boris Johnson's 80 seat majority, bitter arguments have continued about MPs rights to debate key matters under COVID-19. Many of these arguments come back to one core principle, the extent to which it should be MPs or the government that decide what the House of Commons can discuss and when. Our report's in two parts the first of which deals with control of the House of Commons day-to-day -day agenda, and the second which deals with when the House of Commons actually sits. I'll speak briefly to the first part and Daniel to the second. Particularly with respect to the day-to-day -day agenda, this core issue of government versus parliamentary control picks up a strong thread raised more than a decade ago by the Select Committee on the Reform of the House of Commons, more commonly referred to as the Right Committee, for which I served as an advisor and David served as clerk. The right committee made various proposals, some of which were implemented and others not. Those adopted have generally been seen as successful, the election of select committee members and chairs and the creation of the backbench business committee. But some of the most important proposals were never acted upon. The right committee recognized, and I quote, a feeling that the House of Commons as a representative and democratic institution needs to wrest control back over its own decisions. It's from there that we take the report title, Taking Back Control, though it clearly has a strong Brexit resonance as well. The main root of the government's agenda control is standing order number 14, which states that save as provided in this order, government business shall have precedence at every sitting. It then sets out certain exceptions, which I'll come on to, Beyond this, government dominance is reflected in various other standing orders too. The most obvious consequence of standing order number 14 is that the Commons weekly agenda is drawn up by the government with only limited consultation through the usual channels and presented to MPs each Thursday by the Leader of the House in a form that they can do nothing about. During Brexit, Theresa May delayed putting her deal to the House of Commons, then scheduled five days for debate which she cut short after three days when its unpopularity became clear, cancelling the key vote for over a month. After its defeat, ministers refused to provide time to debate alternative propositions, despite indicative votes having been proposed by the Brexit Select Committee and seemingly endorsed by ministers. 
During this period, MPs were denied access to the limited forms of non-government time provided in Standing Order No. 14. These exceptions include 20 opposition days per session in the chamber and 27 for backbench business. But there are two problems here. First, there's no guarantee of more non-government time in longer sessions, and the 2017-19 session ran for more than two years. Second, it's government that decides when such days are held. For a full five and a half months, there were no opposition days. That helps explain how we got into the arguments and lurid headlines about MPs seizing the agenda, which did no good to the reputation of Parliament. Since the election, with Brexit out of the way, remarkably similar arguments have emerged over COVID-19. In terms of how the Commons itself operates, early cross-party consensus quickly broke down, and the Leader of the House refused to make time available to debate an extension to the temporary orders allowing virtual participation, despite protests from the Procedure Committee. For over seven months, a battle has raged between the Leader and the Procedure Committee, and many of his own backbenchers, about their right to debate and decide how their own institution operates during the pandemic. Meanwhile, there's been the controversy about Parliament's exclusion from deciding the wider coronavirus rules. The wholesale use of delegated powers and last minute publication of regulations without parliamentary approval has frustrated many MPs, including on the Conservative benches, but there's little they can do about it. Only six months in, following the rebellion led by Sir Graham Brady, did ministers agree to stage votes on major changes to the lockdown rules. And even then, that hasn't always been adhered to. The central problem in both of these cases is MPs' inability to influence the Commons agenda and to decide for themselves the priorities for what should be discussed. The central recommendation from the Right Committee, which went unimplemented, was that the agenda put to MPs on Thursday should be written, amendable, and require approval in a vote. That change alone would have resolved a lot of the difficulties I've discussed. In addition, greater protection is needed for non-government agenda time. Rather than opposition and backbench time being provided on a sessional basis, Standing Order Number 14 should set out a fortnightly or monthly allowance. That would ensure fairness in longer sessions and reduce the risks of government manipulation. It might also allow backbench time in particular to be used more boldly. We now believe it's time, more than 10 years on from the Right Committee's prescient report, for a fundamental review of government control of the Commons agenda. That might be conducted by the Procedure Committee or by a new ad hoc body, perhaps under the auspices of the Speaker. At root, we suggest that the principle set out in Standing Order Number 14 is the wrong one. As the Right Committee identified, the default shouldn't be government control of the agenda, it should be majority decision-making. While these two may often coincide, recent events starkly illustrate how they aren't necessarily the same thing. And with that, I'll hand over to Daniel. Thank you, Meg. Um, and also thank you to Jill and to the other speakers for taking part in this discussion. Uh, and thank you to everybody who uh, is attending as well. Thank you for taking part uh, in this. Um, as Meg uh, mentioned, I'll briefly speak to the second part of the report, uh, which is about when the Commons is able to sit. 
In many ways, this is a natural extension of discussions about the day-to-day -day agenda. If MPs had greater control over the daily agenda, this would count for little if the government could prevent the chamber from sitting at all. And this was demonstrated most starkly in the case of Brexit. As many of you will know, there are three mechanisms for ending periods of parliamentary sitting. They are adjournment, prorogation and dissolution, and they operate in very different ways. Adjournment is the most common, and in the report, we mainly focus on periodic adjournments, which produce what we usually refer to as recesses. Adjournments must be authorised by MPs, although this approval isn't always meaningful. During an adjournment, most parliamentary business stops, although not all. Prorogation, meanwhile, brings a parliamentary session to an end. There are some important differences compared to adjournment. MPs have no say over whether or when it happens, and all parliamentary proceedings stop. Finally, there's dissolution during a general election campaign. We don't particularly focus on this in the report, but the key point is that its operation is different again. There's a fixed timetable and MPs must approve any departure from it. So we can see that these three types of commons break operate very differently. And in particular, they give very different roles to MPs themselves. Now this became especially controversial during Brexit. Faced with the threat that MPs might take control of the commons order paper, the government prorogued parliament for five weeks at a critical moment in the process. It's clear that MPs wouldn't have endorsed this move. We know this in part because of other actions that MPs took, in particular, rushing to pass the Ben Burt bill before prorogation happened. But they had no formal way of preventing it. Instead, they had to fight the decision through the courts, which brought the courts into what should have been a parliamentary decision and produced significant acrimony along the way. By contrast, when the government wished to authorise an adjournment shortly, well, sorry, when the government wished to authorise an adjournment shortly uh, afterwards for the Conservative Party conference, MPs had the power to reject it, and they did so. That said, decisions on adjournment are also imperfect, as we discuss in the report. Once the Commons is in recess, a further set of controversies centres on how MPs can be recalled. The crucial rule here is standing order number 13, which states that the speaker may grant a recall when this is requested by ministers. In other words, government has the exclusive power to initiate a recall. Recall has generated substantial controversy over the years. Flashpoints occurred over Brexit, but before that there have been many others, most notably uh, in recent years over the invasion of Iraq in 2002. And most recently, there were demands for the Commons to be recalled over changes to the Christmas coronavirus uh, restrictions, which were announced after the Commons had gone into recess. Despite demands from Conservative backbenchers and opposition parties, MPs were unable to debate this change until after Christmas had passed. By contrast, when the government wanted a recall for its Brexit deal legislation, this happened. Our report makes a number of recommendations for reform. As in the first part, the central principle is that MPs themselves should decide. So we recommend that to avoid further risk of controversy, prorogation should be made subject to authorization by the House of Commons. 
The government's planned legislation to amend the Fixed Term Parliaments Act could be used to make this change. MPs should also be given greater power to debate and amend proposals for periodic adjournments. MPs should also have the power to initiate a recall. On this, various models are possible, but the most desirable is for the Speaker to be able to recall the Commons if this is requested by a substantial number of MPs, perhaps also with an explicit requirement for cross-party support. There are also further recommendations in the report, which I will let you read in your own time. But for now, I will hand back to Jill and I look forward to hearing from our other speakers and also uh, your questions later on. Okay, thanks very much, Megan, Megan Daniel. That was incredibly clear and useful pointers here, but obviously think tanks, research institutes can recommend and suggest, but it doesn't lie in their hands to deliver, this is very much about giving control back to parliamentarians. So very interesting views from our, our two MPs here about whether there will be any appetite for, uh, for re-empowering uh, the backbenches, the opposition, basically anyone other than the government. Um, first of all, let's go to Valerie Vaz. Valerie. Thank you, Jill. Um, can I start by thanking the authors uh, of this uh, excellent report? Um, I did read it cover to cover. I read every single word of it. And um, uh, both Meg uh, and Daniel uh, at the Constitution Unit at UCL, uh, you should be very proud of that report. I mean, it's great to see Sir David here, um, who's now retired. And uh, David has scars of many of these battles that you record in there. And, and obviously, Karen Bradley, who has, uh, I have to say, I want to pay tribute to Karen because she's done such exemplary work on the procedure committee and, and her staff um, for informing the debate and helping us to make sense of how we uh, wrest back control and certainly with a hybrid parliament. But uh, for me, the central thing is, what is Parliament for? Uh, and uh, I actually used to quite like um, Constitution Administrative Law when I did it at law school. Um, and it is a very important part of the golden triangle, the checks and balances uh, of a government. So we have the executive, we have Parliament and the judiciary. Uh, and to me, what it feels like uh, at the minute is that Parliament and the executive seem to be in a mashup we're like an uh, amorphous blob. Uh, we seem to be doing the government's work. Um, yes, uh, the government has to put their legislation through. And as the report points out, the parliamentary majority may not be the same as a government majority, but it could be. The fact is politics is changing. People email us daily about various things. We are their representatives, we're not their delegates. And they, but they expect us uh, to progress their views. Um, 68,000 people think uh, that they can tell me what to do, and, and, and they do, uh, and I have to respond to that as their representative. But I want to just focus on the central finding of the report, which is the House Business Committee. And I really like the example that was given of the Bundestag. Uh, and I have to say, obviously, these my views are my personal views. Um, I'm not sure what the whips would say, but I like the example because it means that the whips have a say and they work through the usual channels and they can provide um, a, a view to this uh, committee, however it's formed. Um, and I think there is a room for discussion about what sort of committee it is. 
I think it's quite important now in the in, in the light of the fact that there may not be electoral form reform soon. The fact that we've already had a hung parliament means that we have to take the different views uh, uh, on board. And, and so we've got we would have this committee that looks at the business. Uh, and then again, I like the idea of putting it to the House on a Thursday instead of the sterile um, debate that we have. And maybe look at the possibility of having a rotating chair of this committee, because there's nothing worse than having a parliament as a UNESCO heritage site as the physical part of it. Uh, and the um, procedural part of it also becomes uh, uh, effectively a heritage site. And what we don't want to see is the fourth estate having a bigger say than parliament does. But people have seen me week by week. I have to beg for opposition days. Uh, and so the idea of having them fixed, I think, is a good, is a very good idea. Um, I wanted, I wanted, went slightly further, and this again, this is uh, my thought of perhaps having the whole session as fixed, including the periodic adjournments, so the House knows what's going on, and if the government wants to change it, they can bring a motion to change it back. The prorogation, I think, is is extremely important. Um, I think it should be. It's compelling that it should be authorised by the House. It was absolutely appalling uh, at what happened. And sad to say, it took Gina Miller to uh, take the case. But the powers of oversight of the House have always rested with the Supreme Court. And I still maintain to this day that Brenda Hale's judgment, uh, Lady Hale's judgment, should be read by every single school. It should be um, avid reading through everybody if we get citizenship back. But it was like a silent scream. I felt like I was asking a question. We know this is illegal. We know this isn't right. And nothing happened. The government seemed to be doing things to us. They extend the sessions, as been said. They pulled votes. Uh, now they're still abstaining on uh, opposition day motions. And uh, the Brexit votes were really important. And here, this is where the clerks uh, came in uh, and David of finding some ways to reflect what was going on outside and that there wasn't a majority, I think it was less than 1%, the country was divided. So it was important that both sides of the Brexit debate view was heard. We did everything on a cross-party basis. Um, and so uh, that's why I think it was important to be able to have uh, that debate. Going forward, looking at the rest of it, I think recall um, is quite important. I like the idea that 20% of MPs should uh, are able to uh, start a recall. I know you didn't come down fully in, in this side, but I think nowadays we're all in a WhatsApp group and it can be practically instantaneous to get a view of our colleagues. And it's very simple. It'd be a matter, just as Mr. Speaker decides on urgent questions with advice, it's not a political issue. Um, you could draw up a series of tests. So you could have uh, the leaders of the parties, you could have um, leader of the house, shadow leader and the opposition. I think Tommy Shepherd is, is also here. Um, and you could have a series of tests. Is it in the public interest? Is it immediate? Is it urgent? And then the speaker can decide the agenda for the day. And it usually so far, I think on recall, it's been one topic. So um, I look forward to uh, pushing the idea that there may be a speaker's committee or a commission. I think David was around when we had uh, um, the uh, governance of the house uh, select committee. Um, I think we're finding now there are still loopholes in what the speaker can do, what the leader does. So I think it would be important to iron those out. 
finally, in conclusion, politics has changed and Parliament needs to respond or it will wither. People will be disaffected. And what we don't want is to see the scenes that we saw in America. Parliament is not the servant of the executive. And I know having seen the way the House, politicians and the House, everyone has risen to a hybrid virtual Parliament, the first in the world, I know that we will all rise to this channel challenge. And in the end, democracy is the winner. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Valerie. I think uh, Meg and Daniel can clock that up as potential support from the official opposition, but of course for the foreseeable future, whether anything happens on this may fall more to the current government. Uh, so Karen, I know you were speaking to us as chair of the procedure committee and you've been locked in some battles, I think, over parliament with the leader and giving parliament a more effective voice in these weird times. But Karen, would you like to give your reactions for us to the report? Thank you very much, Jill. And can I start by thanking Meg and Daniel for a fantastic uh, presentation and also for an absolutely excellent report. Um, it's very timely and uh, certainly does uh, ask a lot of questions of us as Parliament. And and I think, uh, you know, I, I was a elected chair of the Procedure Committee, elected under the uh, uh, processes and procedures that were set out in the right committee. And uh, it was this time last year. And little was I to know, having looked at the procedure committee previously that had been uh, at the centre of so much during the Brexit debate, I, I thought we might have a slightly quieter time. I see my former clerk is listening in to this uh, to this debate and the two of us sat there and sort of panned out what we were going to do for the foreseeable future and what great ideas we had for inquiries and then sort of said, oh, but we've also just got to keep an eye on, an eye on this virus in China and um, little were we to know that it would actually take over everybody's lives but procedure in the most phenomenal way with the biggest changes to our procedure in 700 years and um, I think they've shown several things to us they've shown that parliament is resourceful and that we can find ways to get things done if we absolutely have to but they've also shown to us just how valuable meeting in person meeting with our colleagues being in the chamber being able to debate just how important these are to our existences as members of parliament representing our constituents and I think perhaps we'll get to the end of this Covid uh, pandemic if there's ever an end and a normal business in sight uh, and, and reflect that some of the ideas that we used to talk about, about making Parliament more virtual, uh, perhaps are ones that we've tried it now and it's nearly not the right thing for us to do and we do want to get back to that physical debate, the cut and thrust, but the, also the working with colleagues, the being present in the building, the ability to uh, see people and to get business done incredibly effectively and quickly in a way that actually Parliament and that building does enable and perhaps we didn't appreciate perhaps quite so much this time last year. Now I come at this not just as chair of the procedure committee but I, I have to confess I am a former government whip, I am a former minister and I'm a former secretary of state. Uh, a secretary of state who was in the cabinet during the uh, Brexit discussions much of them so I, uh, it, I have lived and breathed so much of this from lots of different angles and I, I really do understand much of what the report says and appreciate why it's in there. 
And I suppose you have to go back to the point, as Valerie said, what's Parliament for? Well, Parliament has two roles. It's to hold the executive to account, but it's also to allow the executive to get its business to be done. And we can never forget that. We can't forget that, that there is really little point to any of this if we don't have an executive that is trying to do things that we want to scrutinise. So Parliament has to facilitate the executive getting its business done, but it also very importantly has to be able to scrutinise. And, you know, I said that when we went into that first period uh, when, the, when the virus hit and we had no virtual participation, all of us as members of Parliament recognised just how hard it was to be able to get our constituents' concerns heard. And government had to find new ways to interact with us. But of course, they weren't subject to the privileges of parliament and the, the, the privileges that a parliamentary proceeding have. And therefore, they didn't let us do our jobs as effectively as possible. And so it was really important that we have been able to, to, do, to work as parliament over the last uh, nine months, and I'm sure it will be longer as we continue working in this suboptimal way. Now, if we look at the way Parliament works, I think it normally actually works well. It, it's not perfect. Would anyone start from here? Would you really start with hundreds and hundreds of pages of Erskine May and standing orders, many of which are totally and utterly incomprehensible? Probably not. But actually, as a, as a toolkit to enable a member of parliament to do their job and as a toolkit to government to enable government to get its business done, it normally works quite well. And, and with a system that has, does have majority government at its heart, we can see that where government works well is, and when parliament works well, is when there is a majority. Because uh, if a government has a majority, it can get its business done because it can get it through parliament. The problem comes where if that majority is perhaps used to do things that the majority don't really want. The whip is applied where the whip shouldn't be applied. And also where we don't have a majority, and we talked about the Brexit time and the fact that that was in a, in a non-majority government, Parliament was able to take control of the order paper and that gave enormous problems to government. So I think we have to be careful when we're looking at all of these suggestions that we, we recognise what works well, we recognise what Parliament is there to do and we recognise how we best make sure that Parliament can do it. Now, just a few points in terms of uh, specific issues. I, I have never been absolutely convinced. I served on the Procedure Committee before I became a government minister and I must say I've never been absolutely convinced by the idea of a House Business Committee. I think it's a nice idea. I think the principle is a nice idea, but the practice is that it would just end up being whipped and it would end up being tribal and it would stop being what we want it to be, which is properly reflecting what backbenchers want to debate. And so with the best will in the world, whilst I understand why people want to see it, I think we have to recognise the realities of what it would look like and that it 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 would not do what the outside world wants it to do and perhaps might therefore end up diminishing slightly what we're trying to achieve and what uh, we, those of us who want to see uh, the, the, the Parliament have its voice, um, do. I'm interested in the idea of an amendable motion, I must say. I think an amendable motion on business questions is an interesting point. Um, I fear it might be still one of those where you had posturing by the usual suspects, but actually the government ended up whipping it and that 
became a problem and therefore it didn't really ever get anywhere. So there's there's always a, a, a risk to that. But it's an interesting thought and one I think that we should consider. Um, I think there's also a point to be made. It, it cannot be right that we're at a point where the Backbench Business Committee has to go cap in hand to the leader of the House for time for debates, particularly when many of the debates the Backbench Business Committee has got time to consider are things that should be just just routine debate. So International Women's Day, we should just have a debate on it. It shouldn't be something the Backbench Business Committee has to find time for. We should just have a debate on armed forces. We always did. This was always part of the government's agenda. And now it's part of the Backbench Business Committee's time. And the Backbench Business Committee then has to go cap in hand to the government asking for time. That, that seems to me to not be really working. I would reflect that during that period, and Valerie will remember this, the period between Easter and Whitson, where Parliament was sort of sitting hand to mouth, there was a daily business motion, and that had to be agreed between all the leaders of all the parties before it went onto the order paper. If it wasn't agreed, the government couldn't have any business for the day. We were effectively operating as if we were in a recall every day, and we needed to have that business motion. And that actually meant that there was a bit more power for the usual channels to be able to change things. And it's perhaps, again, something that we'd want to reflect on. Um, two final, three final points. The first is uh, on recall. I do take the point about recall. The, the, the WhatsApp chats over the period after that uh, lockdown was announced and not being able to come back and not having a recall and needing government ministers to ask the speaker for a recall, uh, standing on to 13, I think, were um, very vivid and lively, as you can imagine. But I think it needs to be a high bar. If a government minister is asking for a recall, it's because collective responsibility within government has agreed there needs to be a recall. If a backbencher is asking for it, it needs to be one that is cross-party, that does have widespread support. So I think it needs to be looked at, but it needs a high bar. Um, the question's been asked about what we could do on prorogation. Um, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, as I understand it, is only looking at dissolution. It's not looking at prorogation. But again, these are points that need to be considered. And finally, I would just say that in everything we do, and we've thought about it all through our recommendations this year, we have to bear in mind the independence of the Speaker. And any of these proposals taking the power from the usual channels and the government and moving them more towards the House moves more more power into the speaker's hands and the speaker has to retain their independence they have to be above parliament they have to be the the servant of the house but above parliamentary politics and party political politics and and it's very very important that we don't start doing things that really impact on that and that would always be my word of caution on any changes that are proposed thank you That's very interesting. Thanks very much, uh, Karen. That was uh, that was really interesting, and I'm definitely going to get Mag and Daniel to come back on uh, on a lot of those things that have just been said. But before that, and maybe to sweep up some of these things, and maybe uh, actually, David, you can shed a bit of light on on Karen's point, which was new to me about the things of migrated to being opposite. To, issues for the Backbench Business Committee rather than just generally scheduled debates. So I was unaware of that and using up, uh, up that time. Um, but David, your reactions. You, of course, wrote the forward to Meg and Daniel's report. So, uh, so it comes with a touch of your imprimatur already. So, David. So, thank you, Jill. My imprimatur. Um, uh, th this, this report, for those of you who had a chance to see it, um, 
is in the first place a, a really remarkably full and naturally a very accurate account of what is actually happening now. And I know from experience 10 years ago that that's often the most difficult thing to do, to have an agreed version of the current truth, even before you start embarking on ideas of how to change it. Because a lot of people, and even briefly from Valerie and Karen, I hear things that I'm not quite sure that they would agree what the current realities are. Uh, but it is possible to come to that agreement. And I think this report is fantastically useful for that. It sets out all the details which can be very easily forgotten or misremembered on recent controversies, which have caused many of us to think the time is ripe to return to right and to build on it. So just a, a plug, you know, the unit should be really proud and, and, and Megan Daniel for what they've done. Because of course, a lot has happened in the last decade. And all of those of you here know what they are, minority government, the United Kingdom Supreme Court judgment on prerogation, COVID, and what I, what I think I call in the preface an, an activist speakership. Um, the system of opposition days uh, has been challenged quite unexpectedly from different directions. I think that came from left field as far as, as I'm concerned. Um, so in the second place, this report has 20 careful, uh, and Karen rightly said we must be careful even making recommendations because th there are checks and balances, but careful, constructive, and evidence-based conclusions and recommendations uh, on uh, pages 58 onwards. So it's a modest manifesto that now cries out for detailed consideration by politicians, by the House in some form, whether a select committee or a um, some sort of informal group, possibly um, uh, convened by the speaker, um, or some way of, of taking this forward while keeping it, I hope, out of um, the immediate reaction of, as it were, the obvious actors or too many of the obvious actors. Um, and I think we know who we mean by them. The, um, now, we can have and should have a healthy discussion, which, which Valerie and Karen have started on some of the specific details and how, if you were to reform the system, how it might work. For example, the House Business Committee. Um, I think it's fair to say that there's always been doubters about that, and, uh, and they, they may even include the author of this report, or the, maybe anyway, the author of the first part of it. And we had many discussions about it. Um, I suppose I just think it's worth thinking. I don't believe that the fee of the risk of being nationalist, if the Germans can do it, I'm not convinced that we can't. Uh, I think the whipping system is quite well known in the Bundestag. And of course it will be whipped. I, I mean, that's what whips are for, and Karen's an ex-whip. I mean, you, they're not wicked. I mean, they're managing a, situ a complicated situation. They're managers. Uh, and how could they not be involved? Um, but then, and then they can get the majority in the House if they can whip that majority. That's fair enough. It's when they can't because they don't really enjoy the support of their own supporters for what they're proposing in some way. And there are, of course, lots of discussions to be had on how it might work and how indeed, um, which, which has worried me always, how the majority might exercise itself in an oppressive way against the minority through a votable agenda. In other words, they would vote against there being an opposition day. So you do need a protection if you hand over to the majority the right to decide an agenda. But I think the example is BBCOM, the Backbench Business Committee, that, that was set up following right with very little idea of how it would work. Uh, and Natasha Engel, is that Baroness? Natasha Engel, anyway, 
took it and ran with it, you know, despite herself being a skeptic. And, and I think that's a reasonable model to say, here's something. Now you're all, you know, your members, you, you sort it out and work it out how it will actually develop, not trying to write it all down in advance and bid to uh, over-design. Um, I'm concerned, and it is reflected in the report, at, at, at a weakness, I look back at the right committee, we missed, which is what I would call house business, that the house business has fallen between the stools. That I mean, the, the, uh, and that has been um, the procedure committee most recently that has demonstrated that, it cannot force its way onto the agenda. So the House sets up this committee to advise it on its own rules, uh, not on uh, environmental audit or whatever, but I mean on something which if you can't decide your own rules because the executive says you're not even going to be given a yes or no. I mean, maybe they're silly ideas, but let's you know give them an airing and have a decision. Um, the liaison committee, the administration committee, um, the procedure committee, uh, Karen was talking about standing orders being obscure. God, God knows that's true, uh, let alone Erskine May. Uh, of course, there was, there's been a proposed revision of standing orders that dates back, I think, six years now from the procedure committee that the government has simply been unwilling to bring before the House. But I mean, that's absurd. Um, uh, that all the house can say no if government ministers say actually this is a bad idea in some way or we don't like this one but that they should not innate they should stop it even being put to the house imagine you had a standards committee case involving a member and the government said we don't like this standards committee report suggesting the suspension of of uh, mrs x so it's not coming to the floor that's a scandal uh, and of course, the speaker does have reserve powers in relating to standards, but standards can't get their revision to a code of conduct. But, but so there are these house, and they're not really backbench business committee. The liaison committee lacks the teeth, and the executive can say no. I think any other parliament would be shocked at that. So my sort of final question is: Is this the right time? Well, it's never the right time. Perfectly, there's no. Um, a general election coming along, unlike in 2009-10, there's possibly no incentive for the government, for ministers and their advisors to take these ideas to heart. Um, but I see two or three things. One, there are opposition parties who are possibly interested. And the secret, it's not a secret, in 2009-10 was not trying to convince um, the then Labour government on its last legs uh, that this was a good thing to do, but Sir George Young and the likelihood at that time, it seemed, that the Conservatives would come in with a majority in 2010, and it was their endorsement of it that made the difference uh, and the promise we'd have a House Business Committee within uh, three years in the coalition agreement. So um, it's really important that, you, you know, even if you can't persuade a government, um, that you can persuade uh, others, some of whom are, are listening, I hope. Or visibly. Um, and secondly, there's the Fixed Term Parliaments Act repeal bill, which doesn't just deal with dissolution. There's no doubt if somebody wanted an amendment about prorogation, I'm sure it would be pretty relevant, particularly if it was a prorogation closely tied to a forthcoming uh, dissolution or the consequences of a past dissolution. So it, it, it does deal with electoral law. I mean, it isn't a single purpose bill, I think. So anyway, it, it does raise the issue. The House will be discussing one of Daniel's points, which is about um, dissolution. 
so whether it, it, it slips sideways a little bit, I don't know. And thirdly, COVID has thrown all these balls in the air and nobody knows where they're going to come down. You know, I mean, there is an atmosphere of change, as, as that has said, it's, it, it's after hundreds of years, suddenly we have amazing things have been going on. Uh, so this is, it is a time at which something might usefully happen. These are not I mean, academic questions. Um, and just because they come from um, two distinguished academics uh, doesn't mean they're academic questions. Uh, and as Karen said, when you look what's happening in America, I used to read books about the Electoral College being sad, thinking these are amusing academic issues. I mean, who would have dreamt, you know, a challenge to the Electoral College? Uh, imagine you have the Trump deciding when Congress sat um, and what they discussed. Uh, but that's what we've got. You know, we've got the executive here doing that. So these are, um, we're coming up to the anniversary, and I'll end now, Jill, <laughs> of um, my other country, Austria, when the parliament dissolved itself by mistake in 1933, effectively, and that led straight to uh, corporatist fascist rule. So strengthening something at times of peace like now and looking at it is the right thing to do, not to wait for some ghastly unforeseen crisis. Thank that's, you. Uh, that's, I think, a very useful warning from David of um, it's never exactly the right time to act, but better to act rather than regret not having act, acted. Um, Megan Daniel, I just wonder if you wanted to react particularly to uh, Valerie's, I think, general support, but Karen's sort of question marks over one or two of your recommendations. Meg, do you want to pitch in first? Sure, yeah. I mean, I'd like to thank all of the panellists for those tremendously rich and, and, and very constructive um, comments on, on what's in the report. And I agree with a great deal of what's been, been said, um, unsurprisingly. Um, I mean, I'm particularly grateful to Karen for her very forensic take on the report, which is what I would expect from a chair of the Procedure <laughs> Committee. And the slight notes of caution that she might sound like she's sounding, um, I completely agree with. So the need to protect the independence of the speaker, the government's need to get its business. These are fundamentally correct. And perhaps we're you know, David, when he drafted the Right Committee report, was very, very careful to write all of that stuff in. And maybe he's a better diplomat than me. Um, uh, I, I agree with those things, but we haven't perhaps explicitly enough um, written them into the report. Um, I also agree with the comment that Karen made. Um, she says, I've never, she said, I've never been completely convinced by the idea of a House Business Committee. And actually, as David hinted, because he sat with me at, in the right committee and we worked together on that report, neither have I. Um, and in fact, what we say in the report um, is that that in itself would not resolve these difficulties. The fundamental recommendation, and I always thought it was the fundamental recommendation of the right committee, was that the House should vote on its own agenda. That agenda might be brought forward by a House business committee, and that might be some improvement on the current system. But so long as the House gets to decide, if it's an agenda brought forward by the government, that would also be a vast improvement on the current system. Because I think that really any small group of members, uh, you know, be it ministers or a cross-party group, can never guarantee to speak for the whole House. Um, and I agree with Karen, and it was in the right committee report, and, and we've re repeated it, that you've got to be careful to guard against mischievous amendments and so on, not, you know, time wasting. Um, you have to have careful selection of amendments, time limited debates and things, I think. And of course, most of the time, what the government proposed 
would be approved because the government has a majority. But on those rare occasions, and I think, you know, Sir Graham Brady being driven to propose that amendment and some of the things that Karen has been desperately trying to get um, debated and decided, mm. those are some examples of things that would make it onto the agenda if the government had to get approval for what it was putting to the House because its own backbenchers would want something slightly different on occasion. And that's why we, you know, we're supporting majority control, not government control. That's the core principle um, in the report. Um, what else? Um, I, it, there was also a point um, which I think David raised, and it, it comes across. It came across from several of the responses um, on this question of sort of where the boundary lies between government business and backbench business, in particular. And I think that was never really completely worked out after right. And that's something that it would be worthwhile reviewing. And we say in the report that we should review the principles of what belongs in government and non-government time. Um, and this sort of house business um, is, 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 the, is the clearest example that I think sometimes backbenchers are actually loath to use the backbench business committee to get some of these things onto the agenda because they feel it's stealing from their other time and that it's the government that ought to be making this time available. So there's no real agreement on what belongs in which block of time. And it could be that we actually, if, if house business is going to go in backbench time, maybe we need a little bit more backbench time. Maybe there should be a few more days to allow for that. But fundamentally, I completely agree with what David has said, mm. the House should be able to get matters onto the agenda, which are its own business. It should have a route mm. to do that. Um, and, and the fact that that isn't the case at the moment is seems to me quite, quite wrong. Um, I should maybe pass to Daniel for the the points about recall and prorogation if we're sticking to our briefs. Yep, Daniel, do you want to come in on recall and prorogation? Yeah, and before I do, I mean, let me just um, echo Meg's comments as well. Thank you uh, very much to uh, the three respondents for such careful um, consideration of, um, of the points that we make in the report. Um, and I, I mean, I think everything that Meg has said um, were things that I had down to say as well. Um, but in terms of the, the second part of the, um, of the report, I mean, the, the point that Karen made about recall, I think that is absolutely right. I think there would need to be um, some safeguards in place because clearly it wouldn't be appropriate for, um, for requests for recall to be, uh, to be made um, overly routinely with very small numbers of people, which you, know, you, would need to, you would need to be sure that there was a sufficient demand, that it genuinely represented the will of the house to return. Um, so so Daniel, things... do you have a view about what's of, what that, because Karen said she thought the bar needed to be set very high to get over for MPs. Do you have a view on where that bar needs to be? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we don't in the report definitively, I think, give an exact threshold in terms of the the numbers. Um, I think 50% would be too high, particularly when you're talking about a period when the house isn't sitting. I think 50% is too high, but that that is a figure that has been suggested by some mm. in the past. Um, I think it could be lower than that, but I one of the things that we do say is that um, there should be probably some sort of cross-party requirement. So one of the things that we suggest in the report is that uh, it would maybe need to come from parties that represent 50% uh, 
of the House. So in practice, when you're talking about a majority government, that would require at least some government backbench support uh, in order for this um, to then be initiated. But I, you know, I, I totally agree with the point about needing some sort of threshold. And of course, I mean, it should be said as well, um, if the Speaker retained a role in that, that would also be a sort of second uh, sort of barrier against it being used in an inappropriate way. So, you know, I think there's plenty to look at in that, um, but I do think the current arrangements uh, go too far the other way. So I think there's a, there's a spectrum of different possibilities to consider. Um, just on the point about um, the, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act repeal legislation, my understanding is that both committees um, that have looked at that have suggested looking at prorogations. So, I mean, we will see what the, the eventual legislation looks like, but um, it may well be that it's possible to do something through that. Um, and then the, the only other point that I just wanted to raise is, so I think Karen is absolutely right about needing to be careful about politicizing the speaker. I think that's a really important consideration and a lot of uh, thought needs to be given to that. I think what I would say though in response is that the speaker takes lots of political decisions. Um, and I think my, my sense from what I've observed so far is that actually, I think that that can be overstated to some extent. The speaker's always making decisions that could be controversial. And I remember a few years ago investigating uh, English votes for English laws. And it's one of the things that people said about that, that it would politicize the role of the speaker. Um, and actually one of the really striking things is that that hasn't happened. Um, so I think, there's I think it certainly is possible to do more than exists now without uh, politicizing the role of the speaker. Uh, but I shall leave it there. Karen, I'm quite interested in coming back to you on, on what might you regard as prejudicing the position of the speaker? What would be a sort of, if you like, a reform too far that would do that? Um, I wouldn't want to uh, make one sort of line in the stand that says this is the point at which the speaker cannot go beyond. But I think David said we had a rather uh, interventionist, I think was the word he used. Maybe it was a different word, speaker, previously. Uh, activist, was it? Activist. Um, we don't have that now. And I think the House has enjoyed that change of attitude from the Speaker. The Speaker, the current Speaker, is very keen to be a servant of the House and not to be the master of the House. And it is that it's a very fine line because the speaker is making decisions. So the speaker, for example, is the person who made the decision to allow us to vote in the division lobbies using card readers, because that is the speaker who has the ability to do that without going back to parliament to ask if we want to do it, but to find a way to make voting as safe as possible, but to enable us to vote in person, because that's what he was given in terms of the remit he wasn't given anything else from Parliament. Parliament didn't have a vote to say we wanted to vote in a different way. Well, we did have a vote, but it was a slightly strange vote, as Valerie will recall. Um, and so the, the House, had, uh, the Speaker was, was asked to find a way to let us vote. Now, if you were to turn it to say, well, the Speaker is actually going to determine everything about the way we vote, I think that would be taking it slightly too far. Now, I, I, I realise I'm not... No. 
I'm not giving you a line here. I'm not saying this is the bar above which it's too it, it's 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 impinging on the independence and that's below that it, it, it's not but it, it is just very careful it's a very careful nuance one has to have and and just taking a step back for all of these recommendations and any recommendation any of us have and we do it in the committee all the time let's just take one step back when we make this recommendation which on the face of it looks to be terribly sensible but is it actually going to mean that the speaker is going to have to take decisions which will affect the way perhaps even stopping the government getting its business done. And that's perhaps that's the test. Is it going to stop the government getting its business being done? Okay, well, that was quite interesting, not least when John Burko declared that the government couldn't put back its uh, motion for the third meaningful vote in the Brexit votes. Um, just... Uh, just a question both to you, Karen, and to, and to Valerie. Uh, Robert Saunders has posted quite a long comment about the fact that so few people on the Conservative benches now have experience of opposition, and perhaps that makes them sort of not particularly uh, aware or, he says, relatively untroubled about the control of parliamentary business by the leadership of the governing party. Um, so he's asking whether more needs to be done to institutionalize the rights of minorities deciding parliamentary business. One suggestion, I'm going to ask both you and Valerie this, um, but one suggestion, Karen, is that the procedure committee should be chaired by an opposition MP. I wondered what you thought of that. You could argue that a, that a difficult government MP in some ways is harder to deal with for, uh, for the government than an opposition MP, though, of course, the PAC is always chaired by a leading opposition MP. Yeah, so the PAC is always opposition, as is the Backbench Business Committee. And actually, I mean, when the Backbench Business Committee was first introduced, um, and actually the Petitions Committee as well, and I was on the Procedure Committee at the time the Petitions Committee was introduced, and we were very firmly of the view that both those committees must be chaired by an opposition member to make sure that they weren't seen as just being in the pocket of the government. I can assure you I'm not in the pocket of the government. I can assure you that... Uh, uh, so I, I think I would just say that, you know, select committee chairs are both government and opposition and they're allocated in the basis of uh, proportion of number of MPs of each party has and number of chairs reflects that proportion. Um, you have to be elected by the House. You cannot become the Procedure Committee Chair by the government saying we want you to do it. It's not like that now. Thank you to Wright. And thank you very much, David and Meg, for that. <laughs> and therefore, I am acutely aware that I was not elected to serve by just one party. And I am a servant again of the House in that regard. And I, uh, I will keep my independence on this matter. I guard it uh, I, I guard it religiously to make sure that I am very much standing up. And actually on the procedure committee, because we're a house committee, um, we can put aside some of those party political tribal issues because we're talking about how we get our work done. How do we make sure as MPs we can do the job that we need to do? And we all have, we all share a pro problems on that, whether we're on the government side of the, of the house or the opposition side. So I don't think it necessarily has to be. Uh, either party, but I'm very happy at the moment that it's somebody from the government side, uh, clearly from my own point of view. Valerie, uh, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, no, I, I just want to touch on the, the speaker point earlier about um, recall. Uh, and I, I did put forward 
that there should be certain tests that have to be met like we do in legislation. So I think that would be the way round um, the politicizing of the speaker. But um, it's like everything, isn't it? I mean, whether you pick the speaker, whether you pick chairs of committees, if the government have a majority, the government will pick the ones they want. I know an example where a very good person could have been a chair of a committee, but the government didn't like them. So the payroll vote voted for the weaker person. So if it, when it was an opposition chair, but what people probably don't realize is that um, the usual channels will divvy up um, which uh, select committee is chaired by which party. Um, I, I mean, I, this is not casting any expressions on Karen. I, I was in a, a health select committee on one of the most controversial pieces of legislation ever. And we had Stephen Dorrell chairing it. And I don't think anyone could have done a better job of doing that. And he was absolutely fantastic. He was former uh, Secretary of State for Health. Um, but we were still able to do that. And, and Karen will know. And I know she, as a, as a chair, she's assiduous in taking the views of everyone. Um, so uh, in terms of... of whether uh, who should chair a select committee, I, I think you can still have an, an inbuilt government majority, whether it's the speaker or whether it's the chair. There's a, there was used to be a joke going around that uh, that John Burko's line manager was uh, our whip, and you know now apparently there's a that uh, uh, the line manager is the Tory whip. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that is a joke. It, it's not true. But but I think ultimately, uh, and it, and it's it's what Karen mentioned about the the reader and things like that. A lot of the work and a lot of the discussion goes on at the commission, and there are many of us at the commission who have pushed and pushed for uh, remote voting, for some other mechanism uh, of 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 the way we vote during this very difficult time. So. I think that's where I touched on earlier about what role the Commission has. And I think there has to be, I mean, it could be another report, could be something for the Procedure Committee to look at, could be another governance of the House, of the roles of uh, what the Speaker is able to do, what the Leader of the House does, what the Government does, uh, and the Commission itself. Um, so I think there is work to be done. But I, I just go back to the thing, if not now, then when? So people have the same argument about well, select committees, oh, this will never work. Um, uh, uh, women's votes shouldn't have women in parliament. And, and I'm, I'm with David uh, and I say that you have to try it. Yes, you, can, you should have a, a, a committee that looks at the details. Yes, we have to be cautious, um, but that's not a reason for not discussing it because it is, and I'm speaking from opposition, it is very difficult. It makes you feel uh, as though you don't have a say. And then people start blaming the opposition, as they did with Parliament or the judges or everybody else, uh, as to not doing anything. Uh, Parliament doesn't do anything. Parliament's irrelevant. And we can't have that. So there has to be some change. Um, and whether it's another select committee to look at uh, this whole report, that would be one of the ways forward. Um, I, I think that'd be a good idea. Um, and, and I think the majority of um, uh, the recommendations in this report are good. So we've got a question, I'm interested, uh, interested in this. We've got a question from Anonymous. Uh, by the way, if anyone who hasn't asked a question and who wants to, could you please 
uh, indicate quickly because we are going to wind up at quarter to three. So that's just a warning to anyone who is being a bit reticent that uh, you need to strike while we're still working rather than have great thoughts after the event. Um, a, a question both to Karen and Valerie, because I imagine Meg, Daniel and David would all say yes to this question from Anonymous, so I don't know who it's from, <clears throat> just saying, do you think that uh, David Natzler described the report as an agreed description of the current position? Does the panel think that the government side of the usual channels would accept that? Karen, do you think that if, uh, if uh, Mark Spencer was reading this, he'd say, yes, this is fair? I would never dare to try to second guess what the Chief Whip might say or think. Uh, all I can say is from my own point of view, it, it is a fair reflection. It does, it does uh, sum up very, very well uh, where we are and how we got here. So I think so, but I'm not going to even try and put myself in the shoes of either the Chief Whip or the Leader of the House. David, you're mute, David. Yes, sorry, as I said it, I thought I said, um, no, no, I'm, I'm allowed to, to, to guess what, what Mark, or, um, no, I don't think they'd accept it altogether. I, I don't think they could, I hope they can't contest any of the facts, but obviously they can contest the interpretation. And Karen already began to quite rightly say, what about the government's right to get its business done, which is always the, the, the response to suggesting a greater degree of control by the house of its own agenda. Um, and as, as Meg has accepted that, that should be in there. And if this, when this is implemented and taken further, there will be various provisions making that absolutely clear that for how long it takes for them to get their business and the exact day or time at which they get their business is open to discussion. But if they have legislation to bring forward, of course they must. Um, I think also, um, and I don't think Roy Stone is, is on our watching list, uh, and I, I know, I, I think Roy would say, and so, yeah, th th it's all a bit pie in the sky. Uh, actually, backbench members are not gagging for a chance to change the agenda. What most of them want is to go home uh, as soon as possible. They want as few votes as possible, especially not on a Thursday, and preferably not after the moment of interruption. Um, although, of course, proxy voting may change that dynamic about worrying about the voting. Um, and what they want is a chance to be in their constituencies and not to be bothered. Uh, with a lot of parliamentary work by a few. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not saying that's a cynical view, but it's a view born of some experience of what members actually uh, will want if they're pressed to it. And secondly, that on recall, for example, I have heard people say, well, the easier it is, it's very difficult for a member to be publicly outed saying they don't want the House to be recalled, if you're asked. Um, it's slightly awkward. You know, why not? Is it because you're enjoying time on the Costa Brava? So I think you would find from some of the professional um, government side a, a, skept a properly sceptical version saying, we'll tell you a little about what it feels like in, in real life sometimes. That's very interesting because, uh, as we all know, taking back control also means taking responsibility for things yes. that you can otherwise blame on others, which is a principle applied in many contexts. You've had another question from Anonymous. I'm going to come to to Megan Daniel on this one. Um, Anon asked, and I have to say this slightly baffled me first of all, so I asked Lisa to go back and interrogate them. 
what's the point of prorogation? Which struck me as rather odd, but uh, Lisa's expanded that they appointed to the fact that various parliaments don't have prorogation at all. Uh, and so the question is what function it serves and whether it should just be done away with. I'm not sure what the consequences of that would be. Daniel, you're keen to come in. Um, okay, uh, well, I'm obviously David's here, so he may, um, he may correct me on some of this. I mean, I think my, and maybe Meg as well, um, I think my view is that I'm not sure that prorogation does serve very much of a useful purpose. Um, you're correct, and the questioner is correct, that uh, there are other parliaments, equivalent parliaments, that have done away with prorogation. Um, I, think, I think one of the difficulties, though, is that um, even if it doesn't have much of a useful purpose, um, it is still relevant to how various different bits of our procedural system work. So, for example, the, um, the, the Parliament Acts. You would need, uh, and of course there are various other precedents that relate to sessions. So you would need to find some way uh, of, uh, of dealing with those sort of um, spillover effects if you did, for example, get away. So if you, if you did do away with prorogation, which I assume is what the, the questioner uh, is is suggesting. So what's the, what's the alternative? You have sort of fixed sessions or you <clears> just have a single session for the entire parliament or quite what happens in a, I'm so used to prorogation as a thing that uh, what, what, what happens when you don't have it? Yeah, I mean, I think you could have, um, you could have a single session. You could have maybe different rules about what happens to bills after a certain period. So, you, I mean, you, you, could, you could kind of design it, I think, uh, as you wished to, to do the things that you wanted it to do. So whether you would still need to have uh, bills uh, passing within a certain period of time. Um, I don't think there's any sort of fixed, uh, fixed requirements of what it would or would not look like. But I think, I think one of the issues I think to bear in mind is that simply doing away with prorogation would I think have far reaching consequences or further reaching consequences um, and therefore, it would be a bigger piece of work than it sounds to just get to just do away with it. I don't okay, know if Meg well, has anything she wants to add to that. Well, I'm going to come to Meg, and I'm actually going to come to the whole panel um, with a sort of question about how change might happen, which I think is sort of interesting question, having put ideas out there and having at least some elements with some support. And there's a question or comment from Anon who suggests that isn't the question less about allowing amendable approval motions on the Commons agenda and more about reviewing those things that only government has control of, e.g. recall, prorogation, ensuring MPs can hold debates on specific and substantive motions via Backbench Business Committee and preventing only a speaker decision on Standing Order 24 applications, etc. So I think one thing that's sort of interesting question is, is do we just need to change the defaults, I suppose, of how Parliament operates and uh, and put it onto a slightly new operating basis. Uh, let me go to our, let me start with David and I'll go to Valerie, Karen, and then I'm gonna give Meg the final word, but Daniel, if you want to bounce in, feel free to bounce in, but I want to give Meg the final word, David. Well, I think the question is saying, isn't it uh, less about allowing let us say, an amendable agenda and more about reviewing the things the government has control yeah. of. That is one of the things the government has control of is the <laughs> agenda. And then they list several other things. Um, 
uh, including recall and prorogation, which Daniel has dealt with very fully, um, BBCOM, it is possible to have debates on specific and substantive motions. Um, I'm a little alarmed at the, the remark preventing only a speaker decision on SO24 applications. Um, it isn't only the speaker that decides on SO24. He, he decides whether or not he's willing to put it to the House. Uh, if there's some dissent as to whether or not there should be an emergency debate, a proponent only needs 40 colleagues to stand and support it. So obviously the speaker is the gatekeeper, rather as Daniel is suggesting, I think, on, on recall, that you have a, uh, whether you have the gatekeeping function before you have the, um, the, the, the number of people approving the other way around is a matter of detail. So um, I, th I think there is more that we're talking about here than simply uh, getting at government control, but we're getting at the most central point uh, of, of government control, uh, which is the executive writing the agenda um, without it being submitted to the, the body of the House, which is in any normal body what you would expect. Um, and, and it's not clear why the House of Commons should be, should be different. Um, so I, I don't think that is, um, I, I don't think reducing it the way that a non helpfully does is, is, that, is that helpful. And on okay. prorogation, just to say entirely agree with Daniel, if you wanted to do it, you could do, get rid of it. There are some things that do matter. The Parliament Act is one. The situation that you're in at odd moments, oddly enough, leading up to a, after a general election, when you've, when, when you've called the House back, if you want to delay it and it hasn't yet met, you can't adjourn it because you haven't yet sat. So you, you, would, you would need a bit of um, draftsman time on it, but it could easily be disposed of. And many countries, as the report sets out, do have a single session parliament in effect. You lose the Queen's speech and it has nice housekeeping functions like the financial year, um, but otherwise it's not, it's not necessary. Okay, that's, that's a very interesting set of possibilities with the Fixed Term Parliaments Act coming into Parliament. Some, I want to ask Valerie, Valerie, um, you've been quite enthusiastic about a lot of this. So does this mean that the next Labour government will change things? So obviously I'm in opposition, we're in opposition now, and we have a view, we feel that some of the things that we wanted to put through have been stopped. Uh, for example, not giving us the uh, opposition days in the way it should be scheduled in the normal way. And interestingly, we've had three in a row um, uh, on Monday. On Mondays, because uh, the government don't want to vote for them. Um, and so that I think is um, not acceptable. But I think we, I, we have to do something. Um, otherwise you get into a situation where, and, and I have to take slight, um, uh, so I, I, I don't agree with David on this point. I don't think members want to go home on a Thursday. There are lots of demands on our time with the constituency, but maybe they feel parliament isn't working in that way. Uh, and if they had votes or they had backbench uh, or, or other uh, business scheduled for Monday to Thursday, then they would be here. So I don't think it's true that we don't want to vote. We do want to vote because we do want to tell the world. We do want to tell our constituents exactly what our views are on certain pieces of legislation. Now, yes, government has to get their legislation through. But um, obviously, the way it works now is they do talk through the usual channels. And that is the main aim, even of opposition whips, to ensure that the government does get its yeah. business. So you'd say yes to the votable agenda then, that would be, yep. 
Yes, and, and right. if the government has a majority, um, it will get through uh, and the government can whip its, its um, uh, members in exactly the same way and have those discussions. But as I said, I think politics is changing as we've seen that some of the backbenchers that have come in now, they are um, to the government's detriment, <laughs> uh, very much of their own mind, uh, and they want to vote according to, well, we had six voting for our universal credit motion yesterday. Um, so, and I think more people more would have done. But um, so I think they are of a different mind now and we have to do something different. Parliament should be the safety valve for democracy. Uh, and so I think there should be some sort of mechanism in which we as the opposition don't have to go as a supine begging as I do each week for an opposition day, it should be factored in or any other uh, mechanism should be factored in. Um, I, they do work so that so the, our opposition whips do work with the government and with the SNP, the third party, they do work together to get the business through. Just to touch on um, sessions, I think sessions are good because you get a Queen's speech and that provides a focus for the legislation. I think if you leave it for about three years, then it may be things will fall off and you don't focus on it and the people do go home. But um, so I think it's important that there is a focus for the legislation and then that, that that's how you get it through. Uh, but I think there should be a return to green papers, white papers, um, so that people can see exactly what the government is putting through, what exactly what legislation is happening and that, that way, um, the debate can be informed and it isn't a question of the government just rushing through whatever legislation they want just because they want to get their legislation through. Right, that's that's really interesting. I'm very interested actually in Valerie's comment that the sort of um, almost the sort of you know breakdown of discipline sounds too negative but the perhaps change perception that backbenchers now have of their roles and their ability to challenge government um, means perhaps Karen that there's more appetite for this sort of reform than there would have been before, I don't know what you think, as uh, someone who's been around a bit longer, she said, in the nicest possible way. <laughs> David, don't laugh too much. <laughs> Sorry, David, mute yourself. I am <laughs> mute. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, there's always an appetite, uh, but I think as the longer people uh, spend in the place, perhaps the less of an appetite they have for too much radical change because actually you learn the ways to work with what you have and how to make it work for you. And when you first come in, it's new and it's daunting and you think, why can't it just be all nice and simple? And just like it was in my old workplace where everything was set out for me and there was a nice agenda and it was I was in control, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like that. And people get used to this and they find ways to make it work. And then when you say, well, I'm gonna take that thing away from you, they wouldn't be terribly happy. I, just a few points. First of all, I think that having the sessions of Parliament is really important. As a minister, I know just how much work goes into trying to get a, a bill to be read in a Queen's speech. That is a phenomenal amount of work. And it means that you've gone through all the processes. And I was very keen on green papers, white papers, and all the other bits of it, because actually I think that's a really important part of government. Pre-legislative scrutiny as well. I took the Modern Slavery Act through Parliament, and that was subject to pre-legislative scrutiny before it happened, it, it, it came forward as a, as a bill. It meant that it was a much better piece of legislation with cross-party support, and it was a, a real sort of world-leading piece of legislation. I agree with Valerie about um, Thursdays. I think people do want to be there on Thursdays, and actually the most oversubscribed debates nowadays are the petitions debates, 
on a Monday in Westminster Hall, which we don't have at the moment, but that's the second most watched bit of Parliament after Prime Minister's questions. And then a, a Thursday afternoon debate, the Backbench Business Committee selects topics that members want to speak about because members have asked for them and they are always oversubscribed and they're always fantastic debates. So I think that members do want to have time to do that. I'd like to see more backbench time on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so that actually it could be at that point when the rest of the world is watching Parliament a little bit more rather than it being a Thursday afternoon when people think that it doesn't matter. Maybe a bit more government business on a Thursday, try and mix it up. But I think, you know, the report gives us some really interesting thoughts and it's really important uh, that I as the chair of the procedure committee you know I'm able to see these kind of things I'm really grateful to Meg and Daniel and the whole team for putting this together because it gives us such a basis to work from. Okay well inappropriately for a report about control of time I've lost control of time so apologies that we're slightly running over but final word to Meg as the report's lead author. Meg. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, everybody. Just a brief word on prorogation. I think somebody earlier on referred to our proposals as modest. Um, and I think we're trying to make modest and achievable proposals. And I think the real mischief mm. in prorogation is that Parliament doesn't get a say. The rest of it mm. is a kind of different agenda. Yes, maybe yeah. you could get rid of it. That would be a big reform. I care less about that, but I, I care a great deal about the government being able to shut down Parliament without its consent. And so that single thing, I think, is the most important thing. And similarly, you know, in terms of living with political reality, which I'm very keen to do as somebody who's worked in politics as well as in academia, you know, you've got to make achievable proposals. Um, this thing about the government still being able to get its business you know, the fact is that the government is the government precisely because it can command a majority in the House of Commons. So, so to suggest that the majority in the House of Commons doesn't want the government to get its business is, is you know, a quite a strange idea. <laughs> if the government puts its proposal for an agenda in front of the House of Commons, most of the time, the House of Commons will support it in what it wants. This isn't a revolution. Mm. I think what it is, Valerie used a very apposite phrase, it's a safety valve. And actually what it does, you know, and Daniel and my work has focused a lot on this idea of anticipated reactions. What it would do actually would make the government more responsive to its own backbenchers and the proposals that the government brought forward would be more responsive to its own backbenchers because it would want their support. And I think that would be a good thing. I don't think it would be a cause for sort of endless antagonism. And in terms of the Backbench Business Committee, um, you know, there was a suggestion in the chat that maybe it's too modest, it can't propose um, substantive motions. And as David says, of course it can. And we do comment in the report that the Backbench Business Committee is, I was the original proposer of Backbench Business Committee mm -hmm. before the right committee was set up. It has been more cautious than I would have hoped and expected. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually this issue of the votable agenda holds some of the key mm -hmm. to that. Because just like the government, you know, can act as a gatekeeper to the agenda. The Backbench Business Committee acts as a gatekeeper to the agenda. And for, at the moment, the situation we have is that if the Backbench Business Committee supports the government's position, to simplify, supports the government's position, it can keep something off the agenda. If it doesn't support the government's position, the government can keep it off the agenda. So you've got these two gatekeepers who can actually block something that has majority support in the Commons from being discussed and you know that's the problem we're seeking to end in terms of how we do it that's a really good question that's what we do next 
Um, I am just enormously grateful uh, to Karen and Valerie uh, for being here and for endorsing some of our central recommendations. And I think that's a pretty good place to start with the shadow leader and the chair of the procedure committee endorsing our central recommendation of a votable agenda. That's a pretty powerful alliance to get going with. And I hope that we and maybe other people in this room and many other people outside this room, including members, might want to work together uh, to actually get some of these reforms um, more widely understood and ultimately implemented. So just thank you so much, everybody, for being here. Okay, well, as Meg said, that's a good place to start, but it's also going to be a good place to stop, because I do realise that I've run badly over time, for which many apologies, but thank you, people who've been there, for sticking with us. My thanks as well to our very excellent panel for what I thought was a really productive conversation about you know, which reforms are perhaps a reform too far and not really necessary, and how we might create a sort of cross-party dynamic around sort of limited but important reforms to allow Parliament to take back control. So thanks very much to the Constitution Unit. A reminder that we will, I think, put the video up of the entire event so you can re-watch or recommend it to your colleagues who were inexplicably otherwise detained at the time and didn't have the chance to look at it. So that's all we're doing now. So thank you all very much and have a nice rest of the day. Thank you very much.